Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Talking Hockey Sense. This is episode 36 of the podcast. I'm Chris Peters. So glad you could join me for this week's episode. Lots to talk about. It's a Q&A episode. We're in the Olympics. We will talk about that. I had my draft rankings out. I spent last week talking about the Olympics, but we got to get back to the draft rankings. I got a lot of great questions about the draft, about the Olympics, about drafted prospects. There's a lot to get to, but we... Are going to start with the Olympics just because I think it's important to to talk about it a little bit more. Um, the women's tournament already underway. As we are recording this, the men's uh, tournament is just hours away from beginning. The U.S. will play on Thursday, so this will come out the day before the U.S. gets rolling. That game is at 8.10 in the morning Eastern time against China. So that is the game. Some good news for the U.S. men's team. Jake Sanderson is out of uh, COVID protocols. He is on his way to Beijing. He has to clear protocols once again upon entry, assuming that happens. There is a good chance, not a definite chance, but a good chance that he will be available for the game against Canada. Team USA does have one reserve player there, Justin Abdelkader, former NHLer. Um, he is registered with the team. There is roster flexibility, though, so Team USA will be able to register Jake Sanderson after the fact because he was absent due to uh, COVID reasons. And so there is roster flexibility, which there isn't normally in the IHF tournament. But now Jake Sanderson has the opportunity to represent his country at the Olympics after sitting in a hotel room for about a week um, in Los Angeles and I'm wondering if he'd have the opportunity to play. He needed four negative tests. Those all cleared. Um, or four, sorry, four negative tests over four consecutive days. And that all happened. So very good news. Team USA also had a couple of COVID hiccups. Uh, Andy Mealy, Stephen Kampfer, assistant coach uh, Brett Larson were all in COVID protocol. Um, but they all appeared to be false positives. They tested out of protocol and rejoin the team. So Team USA will kick things off against China. We are recording this after Team USA on the women's side played Canada, lost 4-2 in that preliminary round game. It is the third straight Olympics where the U.S. women have lost to Canada in the preliminary round, sixth out of nine Olympic meetings um, that the U.S. has lost to Canada. They won both of the first two in the 1998 Olympics, 
and then won obviously the gold medal game in 2018. So those, uh, you know, the wins have been few and far between, but for Team USA at the Olympics against Canada, not great. Uh, don't love that for for the Americans, but at the same time, you have to give Canada a lot of credit. I think that that team looks absolutely on a mission, very similar to I thought. You know, I thought the U.S. women, after what happened in Sochi and what happened, you know, in in Vancouver, there was just this this feeling of enough is enough, and and they pushed back. And I think that the Canadian women appear to be on a mission. They looked uh, solid. Um, but you know, they had to find a way to win against the Americans. I think the U S gave them their best punch. And, uh, unfortunately it wasn't enough team USA outshot Canada in that game, 53 to 27 and Renee Debian had the 51 save performance for Canada. Thought she looked outstanding. A lot of concerns about the U S power play going one for six in that game. Um, there was a controversial penalty shot that Marie Philippe Poulin, uh, converted on. I personally didn't have a problem with the call. I know a lot of people did, even though she got a shot off. So um, a lot of different things at play there. But that game ultimately matters more for seeding than anything else. It doesn't knock Team USA out of the Olympics. They'll have another chance to potentially play Canada um, no sooner than the gold medal game. So Team USA will be playing the Czech Republic, or Czechia, sorry, um, in the uh, the the quarterfinals of the the women's tournament. The format has changed over the years. The U.S. will play um, in that quarterfinal against Czechia. Um, the Czechs have a, a young team, an upstart team, very exciting group. Um, so that'll be a test, but we fully expect the U.S. to be able to clear that hurdle and go through the rest. But um, definitely some concerns coming out of that game. I mentioned the power play. That's been that's been tough. But over the course of the tournament, the U.S. leads all teams in shots on goal. However, they're only scoring at 8.5%. And to, to kind of put that into context, Canada is scoring on 17% of their shots. And when you consider the fact that the U.S. played Switzerland, uh, Switzerland and Russia and Finland as well, in addition to playing Canada, um, you say, okay, well, why aren't pucks going in as easily for them as they seem to be for their counterparts? And I think, you know, there, I do think there is a bit of a skill gap. There's no question in my mind that the U.S. women's team is, um, you know, close to Canada in that regard. But there's there, I think there are more players for Canada than there are for the U.S. And if you go back and listen to our previous two episodes, you know, the last one I had a, an in-depth discussion with Nicole Hazy. Um, who was on the program to talk about the, the women's hockey tournament. Also go back and listen before the tournament starts. Uh, Stephen Ellis was on to talk about the men's tournament. So we had two really in-depth previews, and I thought Nicole brought up a lot of great points in that. And one of the points that, that I also brought up was, you know, I, my concern for Team USA is that, you know, what what is their identity as a team? We didn't really see it in the pre-tournament. We didn't necessarily see it in any of the games. You know, what, what are they exactly? Um, and who... You know who's going to be the player to take the to take the lead of this team, and no one has really kind of stepped out. They've scored by committee. Everybody's been involved. Um, you know, there's been some contributions from younger players. I think we probably expected some more from some of the older players. Goaltending, they haven't really settled on a starter. Um, you know, they're they're every single game. You've had different goalies, except you know, Matty Rooney's gotten two starts now. So there's a lot of just kind of uncertainty about where things are with the women's hockey team right now. Um, and you think about, you know, what what they've lost from their previous, you know, Casey Bellamy, uh, Monique and Jocelyn Lamoureux, Megan Duggan, um, you know, Emily Falzer, all these different players that that were part of the last group that, that you know, brought different elements. 
you know, have they been adequately replaced? I think that still remains to be seen. There are definitely some bright spots. I've really liked Abby Murphy. I've liked Abby Rock. You know, Jesse Comfer has been outstanding in the tournament. Hope that she gets, uh, you know, the, the due credit that she deserves for stepping up in some big games, scoring some big goals. Um, but until you, you know, beat Canada, that's really the only measuring stick at this point for the U.S. women. And I think that there is a, even though they outshot, badly outshot Canada and, and had every opportunity to win that game, I still never got the sense that that game was, that they dominated as much as the score sheet showed. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, when you get Canada, that was Canada on short rest. They played less than 24 hours the day before. USA was coming off of a day of rest. You know, I think you need to do better than, than what they did. So there's a lot to be learned and there's a lot to work on heading into that gold medal game. But you can't lose sight of the games in front of you. Still got to win the quarterfinal, the semifinal, and then get to that rivalry matchup. Also wanted to touch on, I did forgot to mention this as I was talking about the men's tournament, um, Kent Johnson, the number five overall pick uh, from the 2021 NHL draft of the Columbus Blue Jackets, currently at the University of Michigan, was also registered to Canada's roster. He's a reserve player. Canada had two players that did not clear protocols. There is a chance, at least at this point, that Kent Johnson will have at least the opportunity, it's not guaranteed, uh, but it would have the potential opportunity to dress in Canada's first Olympic game, which would be great for him. We'll see if that happens, uh, but a lot left there. Also on the Olympic front, USA and Canada's men's teams did play in a scrimmage. There was no, you know, it was basically we're at the mercy of the media that was there kind of reporting on it. Also got, you know, kind of read the recaps, heard about it. They, they played two halves. Nobody scored in the two halves, so good on the goaltenders, I suppose. Uh, both uh, Drew Camesso and Strauss Mann played for Team USA in that game uh, for, for for the goaltenders. They did also play um, three-on-three kind of overtime style, but they just, after there were goals, they just kept going. Um, USA scored two in the three-on-three, -three, and one of the things that I heard coming out of that from people that observed the game was that Team USA's speed was a factor, and that is something that we've talked about um, on the previous podcast, you go back to episode 34, Brad Schlossman and I were on there. We talked a lot about the youth of Team USA, the fact that they have so many college players, but there was clearly an emphasis on speed. And if that is a factor against a Canadian team that I think is, you know, one of the better teams on paper going into this tournament, if, if USA feels strongly about that, I think it's going to give them an opportunity to really make a difference in this tournament. Can speed be a factor? You got to finish, but speed can be one of those separating things in this tournament and one of the reasons why I think it was so important to bring a younger roster but cannot wait for that tournament to start I mean and and you know I think we have to also talk about the Olympics are weird there's no hype there's no, you know the the women's game definitely had a lot of attention on it that was awesome it was it's kind of fun to participate in Twitter that night there was a lot of passion out there for the USA-Canada rivalry. I think the men's tournament is going to have a harder time kind of converting people into watching. Um, if you're an NHL prospect fan, you have you know 30-plus reasons to watch. There are so many NHL-drafted prospects. There are undrafted free agents. There are guys that you may be rooted for for your favorite team before that you're going to get a chance to see again. Guys like David Krejci and Valtteri Filppula, um, you know, uh, Leo Komarov. I mean, there are a lot of different... There are a lot of different um, players that you know and, and ways to find a rooting interest in the tournament if you know if you're not just the national pride element of it so um but you know i i just think that uh 
that as everything is unfolding, as we watch the Olympics, I mean, there's so many different things that, that come into play. Obviously, we talk a lot about, you know, China and, and, and the human rights violations and, and, you know, whether or not these Olympics should be happening in the middle of a pandemic and all these different things that, that kind of come into it. In the end, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like all of that stuff does matter to me personally, um, but there's not a lot that we can do about it at this point. And, and I, you know, I'm covering a hockey tournament. And that's that's all it really is. As long as you understand the context around the Olympics and 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 the the issues with with it politically at this point, you know you you do compartmentalize that and just look at the hockey and and say, okay, well, this is where it is. Um, we're just gonna have to watch it and 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 go through it. There's not gonna be any fans. It's gonna be weird. Hopefully, the COVID doesn't continue to have the impact that it has had. Russia is having COVID issues. Finland had, uh, you know, Marco Antillo was in in quarantine, and and the head coach Yuka Yolonen said, you know, I feel like his his human rights are being violated. He's not being fed properly. All these different things. It's like, whoa, man. So not off to a great start. We can't ignore that stuff completely. But when the puck does drop, hopefully it provides, you know, uh, some compelling games. And again, go back to the last episode. You can hear Stephen Ellis and I talk about every single men's team in the tournament um, with the, with thoughts on each. And Stephen has, has such great insight because he's he's often watching um, hockey, the, the the many different things, hockey events that that not everybody else will watch as he does at the Hockey News. So so be sure to check that out. All right, before I get to the Q&A, I do want to talk about my midseason draft rankings. And if you go over to dailyfaceoff.com um, or if you just go ahead and search for Chris Peters' midseason draft rankings for 2022, um, you will find a you know 32-player, 32, 32 capsules, but 50-player ranking um, on dailyfaceoff.com. And if you missed it, if you didn't see it, uh, yeah, I was the guy that put Logan Cooley over Shane Wright. And I want to stress something very clearly. This is the midseason. Um, this is my view as the season has played out. I fully understand and reserve the right to change my mind. Um, I try not to set things in stone right at the beginning. I try not to get so stuck on one thing. I think it's burned me in the past where I feel like, well, this guy is the undisputed number one, and I can't argue with that. Um, you know, I think there have been instances where you have thoughts that maybe there's a challenge. I think the year that Rasmus Dahlin went number one, I think I stayed very rigid on Dahlin and, and thought that him positionally was going to be um, the absolute. And I was a huge Andrei Svechnikov fan. I thought this is a guy that's going to be a superstar in the league, but his position didn't have as much value. We're going to actually answer a question later about this, about positional values and different things. Um, you know, And I felt very strongly that the Sabres desperately needed the defenseman. I would never begrudge them that pick even to this day because I still think that Rasmus Dahlin has not even – um, scratch the surface of, of, of his full potential at this point. Um, but everybody's talked about Shane Wright as the clear number one. He's an exceptional player. And and quite frankly, I came into the season thinking there was no way that anybody was going to have a chance to knock him off. Um, but as the season progressed, and as I watched more and more and more and more of Shane Wright in particular, I um, mean, it was all on video this year. I haven't had a chance to see him live yet. 
Um, certainly hope to. I would have seen him at the the World Juniors if I went to that, but luckily I didn't, and then it got canceled, and then everything else went crazy. Um, but I have seen him live before, and well, I've seen him actually seen him live when he was uh, in his in his draft OHL draft eligible season and his. Ex- before he got the exceptional status. And then again at the last World Under 18 Championship. And I can't be more impressed with the player. I mean, really, he he is special. Um, I think the the concerns that I had were largely born out of, you know, things that we've talked about on this podcast. The fact that he hasn't played, uh, that didn't play last season. And what does that what did that do for his overall trajectory? How did that impact him? Will those be things that linger? Because I think over the course of this season, we've seen he hasn't necessarily popped out as the elite of the elite players. Now his production has picked up in the OHL. He's starting to get more chances. There's he's starting to take over games more. And that's what I wanted to see earlier in the season that we weren't seeing yet. So maybe as the season progresses, he's getting his legs under him better. He, you know, he's, he's, he's finding that dominance. Um, but it's hard to separate that from how good he was as a, as, as a 15 year old in that league you know, producing at a higher rate than Connor McDavid. And you say, oh, well, body of work. Well, the body of work also includes a one-year gap of playing where he, the only games he played were in the under-18 World Championship. And that, to me, increases the risk of his overall projection. And that was one of the reasons why I started leaning more towards Logan Cooley. The other thing that really pops out is in the offensive elements of the game, the, the one thing that I think Shane Wright does absolutely better than Logan Cooley is shoot. He's an absolutely elite shot. I think that he can use it even more. And as he gets that, it's going to be, um, you know, I, I think that could be a huge factor for him. He's bigger. He's probably stronger. And he might be better. You know, I think that they're they're closer defensively than people think. Um, I'm not here to say that Logan Cooley's a shutdown center because he's not, and it would be really difficult to be that, at, you know, at his size at this point. But I would say that the reason that the, the things that really popped out for me is, is, you know, Logan Cooley has been so impressive against college teams this year. I've seen him live multiple times and I understand that the live, you know, people said, well, is it a USA or NCAA bias for me? And it's, it's really not. It's, it's, I, I think if there is a bias, it's that I've seen Cooley live more this season. Um, and, and I, you know, I have a full accounting of, of how he moves and, and the way that he does certain things and, and, and the speed and the explosiveness and the incredible skill that he possesses. And the fact that I think there are many things that he does offensively that Shane Wright simply cannot or will not do, um, because of the style that he plays. And I think you're looking at a more dynamic player. And so I, I actually wrote this on daily Faceoff as well. You know, I think that there were when I look back at the the Jack Hughes Capo Caco draft, um, the things that that you know Caco started to make a late push at the end of the season, and now this is a, we're comparing centers to centers in 2021 or 2022 rather, and in that draft it was center to wing, and so the center is always going to get the advantage over a wing, just the natural center. That's a position that has a higher value. It's a more impactful position, um, and you essentially need a number one center to really, you know, build a team around. And so, um, but, but, you know, Kako had the size advantage. He had strength. He had the pro experience. He was a, you know, maybe had a, the better shot and, a, and, and he also had won more of the big events, you know, in the, the head to head competitions, winning at the world juniors and, and winning at the world under 18s and, 
and, and winning all these d- different events and then uh, and then later a world championship you know so he, he he had gold medals all over the place but Hughes was still far and away the more dynamic player I don't think it the gap is as huge between um Cooley and Wright in terms of the dynamic elements and and I want to stress again that this is a razor thin margin between these two players we're talking about taking skills that are you know we're, we're nitpicking away just to just to try to get there like I had to be dragged kicking and screaming to this ranking and if you think that I did it for attention um you you should probably know that I'm a midwestern born Irish Catholic who I'd rather you not pay attention there are times when I write things, I'm like, I hope nobody reads this. You know, so but this was one, obviously, the draft rankings. I want you to read. This is what I do. This is how but but I, I wanted to make sure that I did all of the work necessary to make a decision like this. And in the grand scheme of things, I'm not picking for a team. And also, this is one man's opinion. One of the one thing I wanted to talk about today about the draft rankings was process. And normally in my process, before our rankings will come out, I will put my list together and then I will start calling scouts and I will say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And that is in many times has led me to move things around this year, especially now that I'm at daily face off at a new place, trying to figure out, you know, different things. One of the things that I wanted to do with this particular draft ranking is I wanted this to be wholly my opinion. I didn't want to let things cloud what I thought because for one, it's more challenging that way. There's a lot of validation. Now I'm not saying that I didn't go out and read a lot of the other public lists that were out there because I did, because I wanted to see, especially after I completed my list. Um, but that didn't materially change anything in my, in my rankings, but it was more to see what my peers are doing, what my peers are thinking. Um, and and in the end, you know, as I, uh, the more I looked, I was like, you know, I think there's just enough here for Logan Cooley to edge him out at this point of the season, knowing full well that it might not be the same later on. And in the end, it's the midseason ranking. It's not the final ranking. I do know for a fact there are NHL teams. You know, I spoke with one not long after the rankings came out and he said, you know, essentially that Shane Wright was not their, their number one. Um, I don't think that's a widely held opinion. I certainly don't think that my opinion that Logan Cooley is the better player is a widely held opinion, and I'm okay with that. Um, I think that there, I, I have often been risk averse, and I would say that the safer pick is probably right if you're looking at the full body of work. But in terms of the things that I value in a player, the things like the hockey, like you know, hockey sense is elite in both players. I think vision is elite in both players. Um, I think that there is maybe more precision and, and, and dynamic elements in Logan Cooley's game. And I think that that is what could be the separating factor here. And so I just want to give you guys a full explanation. If you didn't read the draft rankings, please go and read them because there's even more there. Um, but also know that there is a lot that can change over the course of the next season. So um, there are questions about the draft. We'll get to those too. But I also wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the other things. In that draft ranking, you'll notice that there are two defensemen in the top 10, um, David Juracek and Simon Nemitz. Those two guys are 
very, very in in much similar ways to Cooley and Wright, I feel like there is a very small margin between these two players. And I do have a question that's related to both of them, so I'll save some of this for that. But I think it's it's very slim. I did have Juracek ahead of Nemitz. I think they are both exceptional talents. Nemitz is playing in the Olympics at 17 years old, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Him and Yuri Slavkovsky. Um, uh, so that'll be something to keep an eye on. Uh, also a player that, that I have rising rapidly and I think will rise even higher as this uh, season progresses is Frank Nazar from the National Team Development Program. So you're talking about two centers in the NTDP right now that could be guys that I, I I have in my top 10 Nazar is 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 number nine he's committed to go to Michigan um, he is a lot of the, a lot of the similar things as Cooley might have a bit of a better goal scoring element to him um, you know certainly does in terms of the numbers and how that bears out and also one of the things that Nazar has done this season that also provides a little bit of of, of a unique element is he has been the better performer against USHL teams this year than Cooley. Um, Cooley has been a little bit more impactful against the colleges, although Nazar has really kind of come on in that department as well. So uh, those are some some of the interesting names and certainly go over to Daily Faceoff. I have capsules on my top 32 players. Uh, I have, I'm sure there are things that you'll agree with and things that you won't, but I hope that you will check it out, read it with an open mind. And uh, yeah, you can always let me know what you think on Twitter at Chris M. Peters. So without further ado, I'd like to start bringing in the questions. And we're going to start with the draft questions. Since I'm talking about the draft rankings now, we'll go into the Olympics after that. And I've got some really interesting ones about just generally about prospects. Um, Also, there's some talk about, you know, the Chicago general manager search, which I think is really intriguing. There's talk about the Arizona Coyotes and their future in the desert. And there's also the requisite college hockey questions as well. I, if you ask me on Twitter, I have guaranteed an answer and your question will be answered. There are, is a ton to get through, but like I said, the way this will get structured, we'll start with draft questions first, Olympics questions next, general prospects questions after that, and then even more general hockey questions after that. So let's get to it on this week's Q&A on episode 36 of Talking Hockey Sense, where I turn the podcast over to you, the listener, and I cannot wait to see what you have for me this week. All right, our first question comes from MW. Frank Nazar or Logan Cooley and why? Who do you see as a better offensive defenseman between Juracek and Nemitz? Thanks. Well, thank you for the question. Well, kind of answer this already in, in my comments before, but I think we'll go a little bit further in depth. And, and Frank Nazar and, and Logan Cooley are the top two centers of the national team development programs under 18 team this season. They have both put up over 40 points this year. Cooley has played in fewer games uh, than Nazar has, and so has a higher points per game average. Um, both have performed very well throughout the course of this season. I think the, the one separating factor between the two, at least statistically at this point, is that uh, Nazar has played um, or has produced at a higher rate against the USHL, 21 points in 14 games in that league, whereas Cooley has 15 points in 12 games, so it's not a huge gap between the two, um, but certainly you know, you're looking at the a, a impact that both of these players have. Now, the one advantage that Cooley has over Nazar is that he has been kind of the anointed one. He played in the World Junior Championship. He was one of the best forwards at the World Junior Summer Showcase 
earned a top six role for the USU 20 team, which is really difficult to do um, in any circumstance, but especially this time around, you know, when basically you have to play behind Maddie Beneers, who's the number two overall pick in the NHL draft. So uh, Cooley really handled that role extremely well. I thought that he made some, some great plays. We only saw one real game, one game that counted for the U S at the world juniors, but that was an opportunity for Cooley to, to step out. And I think that what he showed at that is one of the reasons why there's a separation between the two of the players. Now, if you look at it based on skills, both of them very similar, um, both quick, both skilled, both can score, both, you know, they, they're, they're shot pass threats, both of them, um, and just really tenacious players. They play with a lot of energy. They, they get after it. You know, I think that Cooley is a little bit more refined, but at the same time, Nazer has a lot of the a lot of similar elements that really do um, stand out in games. I think he's got maybe a little bit better of a shot, um, you know, if, if, if anything else. Um, but you know, that's, that's something that's interesting. And, you know, the other thing is, is Nazer is, is kind of behind the eight ball a little bit, um, just because, you know, Cooley had the opportunity to play with the under 18s last year. Nazer was not one of the players that was selected. Um, however, I think the way that he's played this season, he has really vaulted himself into the top 10 conversation and, and, and is rising. Um, you know, statistically, he's certainly right in the mix of, of, of top players. Um, you know, when you look at kind of some of the projections that, you know, that it, depends on you know where you look for certain things one of the guys that i that i definitely look at and, and have looked at further just for a little extra context of how a player is playing is is um uh, byron bader over at hockeyprospecting.com and you know, he has a subscription service where you can kind of look at some of the the projections and the one thing that i'd, I'd caution against is if you look at the projections and you say okay well naser has you know his, his nhl equivalency in in um in byron's model has him at 37 points where Cooley's at 30. Um, you know, that's, there's a, a couple of different things that, that kind of go into that. Um, but, you know, you can go on the Byron site and read kind of some of the process things there. But but really, I think what it comes down to is is the two players are, you know, they're, they're both exceptional uh, young players. I think Cooley, to me, um, there's a little bit more there in terms of the, his ability to finish plays, his play with without the puck, um, and also his play with the puck. You know, I think he's a guy that that really um, just pops and can carry play. I think they're very similar. I think that Nazar is going to continue to rise up the charts, but for me, Cooley is the difference, uh, the difference maker between the two players. Um, another question that the MW asked was also about the defensemen. And I, I have to say that the two defensemen, the two top defensemen in this year's class are exceptionally intriguing to, to look at because they both play in Europe. They both play professionally in very different leagues. You've got David Juracek playing in the Czech Republic. You've got Simon Nemitz playing in the uh, Slovakian league. And neither league necessarily is the home of uh, you know, top prospects, especially defensemen. There's not a lot of precedent for what these two guys are doing. Um, you look between the two, and you're a check to me. The, the question specifically is about the offensive upside. And I think if you're looking at the offensive elements of your, of, of Nemitz's game actually are, are more helpful in the defensive zone and his ability to move pucks, get exits. You know, he's got good length and good good stride. You know, can get up the ice pretty well, has some smoothness to his puck moving capabilities. He's a little bit smaller than Juracek. Nemitz is a 6'1", 192. Juracek 6'3", 190. Both right shot defensemen. I don't think there's a lot separating these two. But what I think 
Um, offensively, I do view Juracek as the higher upside player, even though as, uh, on that model that I just mentioned, Byron Bader's on, uh, on hockey prospecting, Juracek doesn't have the same, you know, doesn't have nearly the same NHL equivalency as Nemitz does. Um, and the thing about the the points and, and everything else, you know, you look at him, you kind of take him with a grain of salt. And Nemitz has been playing in the Slovakian league for a couple of years now. I'm super impressed with his maturity, the way that he plays. But I do think that Juracek has a little bit better on the puck skill side. He definitely has a better shot. Juracek has an absolute bomb. It's, it's a weapon. I think he's still learning how to use it properly. Um, you know, there's definitely... You, you know, some some kind of um, you know, things that you look at. And a, a defenseman shot is one of the things that doesn't make a significant difference for me and in, in how I rank the player. I much, much more care about how they handle the puck, how they move the puck, and things like that. So, um, But in terms of being able to, to be a point producer at the next level, I do think that Juracek has a better opportunity to do that than Nemitz, even though I think Nemitz might be the more refined player. Juracek has a little bit more um, room to grow. I think there's a little more ceiling there uh, for him. So I'm really kind of waiting to see what happens. And it's just very difficult to judge when you've got a player in the Czech Pro League and a player in the Slovakian League. Um, you know, there's not a ton of precedent to, to kind of compare it to in recent history. And, and that always gives me a little bit of concern just in terms of, you know, these are both leagues that I don't tend to have a ton of time uh, don't spend a ton of time on because the, the the majority of the players aren't going to be in those leagues. But obviously this year, watching a lot more, I think that the, both players are challenged significantly. They both play significant minutes, um, and the difference is, is you know Nemitz being in Slovakia, he's getting more opportunities with the senior team. He's already played in the men's world championship. He's played in the world juniors. He's going to play in the Olympics. You know, so he, he's got those skills. But I have Juracek just slightly ahead of Nemitz because of the offensive upside. Because I've believe even though the points may not necessarily dictate it that the that the puck skills the puck moving and the shooting ability are are all combined for him to be a probably a more productive defenseman I don't think he's a, a huge liability defensively um you know I think Nemitz is probably the better defender overall but again we're really splitting hairs between two players but I, I do view Juracek as having the higher offensive upside next one comes from Mike Craddy and he asks where do you stand on Seamus Casey and where could he go? Well, on dailyfaceoff.com in my rankings, Seamus Casey is ranked 36. I so that, you know, is if you're reading my work, you're saying, okay, well, I personally think that he's an early day two pick. And you say, okay, well, you know, he, he's definitely been one of those guys that is is a little bit more popular um in in the public uh, you know, kind of some of the, the my, my peers in the public realm where, you know, people that do this at, at elite prospects and f future considerations and, you know, Corey Promen and all those things. And, and Corey isn't as high on him as um, as some of those other places. But, um, but Seamus Casey in particular is a super intriguing prospect, one with a lot of upside. I think that there's a lot left to learn about him in terms of his overall game, where it can go from here. The one thing that, that, foundationally you have to love about his game is his skating outstanding skater you know i think a lot of the public uh public sites do have him as a uh top 15 pick you look at some of the other ones tsn craig button you know they're more in that 44 to 50 range while i'm kind of in the middle i i think that casey has a chance to sneak into the first round but you look at his numbers 
decent overall, not huge production, but certainly, you know, he's he's got 22 points, 35 games, really good at the national team development program. Um, and and that's that's solid. But I think that some of the offensive elements of his game are not necessarily translatable at this point. You know, I think that he sees things well. I think he 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 has you know decent puck moving abilities. Um, he did miss the, the last time I got to see the under 18s live. He was not playing um, in those games, but I did get a chance to see him earlier this season. And um, you know, he's 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 super intriguing because that skating ability that he has is pretty special. But when you are a, a sub six foot defenseman, as he is at 5'10", 161, he is a right shot. Um, also a Florida native, which is just a kind of a cool little thing. Um, but you know what? What more can there be? So you know, defending, he's fine. I think adequate. Offensively, is there enough there? Is there enough of a dynamic element? I think puck skills wise, he's fine. Not not amazing. Um, it's more about the skating. So until we see more progression in the offensive game, until we see things that are a little bit more translatable for a player of specifically at his size, um, then you know y- you give it pause. But I do think that there's a lot to like about his game. He's got a foundation to build on. He's going to the University of Michigan next season. Um, you know he'll, he'll have a chance to play a pretty significant role as as they have players move on. So Seamus Casey is absolutely a player that I, I think remains on the radar for the first round, but for me right now, early day two pick. Are there any college kids in their final year of eligibility who some teams are looking at taking this summer? Um, there could be. It's it's hard to say. I know there are certainly some players that, that Central Scouting ranked um, that you know would potentially be in that mix. Um, you know, one guy to keep an eye on who, who I know central scouting is very high on. I haven't necessarily felt that that has been shared widely is David Gucciardi, who plays at Michigan state university. He had a pretty good junior career in the USHL. Um, he's got some offensive skill. He's having a pretty decent season with, with Michigan state. Um, and you know, he's, he is a 2002 born player. So, you know, this is kind of his last uh, chance to, to get a, get a good look. Um, in the draft, there's some skills there. There's there's some wildness to his game. He's got 10 points in 28 games so far for Michigan State as, as a freshman. He did have 17 points in 29 games with the Waterloo Blackhawks. And, and so 20, also 20 overall um, over the course of the full season. He also played four games with the Youngstown Phantoms. Bounced around the USHL a little bit. Kind of got into penalty trouble, you know, discipline issues um, on the ice at least. Uh, but an intriguing player, certainly one to keep an eye on. Um, you know, I think in terms of other players in in the college game, um, not a ton. I don't think that there will be a lot that 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 teams are looking at. There will certainly be a lot more college free agents this year, um, guys that that that'll have a chance to be signed that are that are having big seasons. But you know, yeah, you're not going to see. I don't think a ton of reentries out of college. You will see several re-entries drafted and I think you're actually looking more it could be a very good year for the USHL in terms of re-entry guys to go in this draft and um, that actually brings me to my next question from Mike Davis any draft re-entries that you think have a solid chance to be picked and I, and I do think there are quite a few um, right over you don't have to go very far in, in, in the USHL to see some that very well could be drafted 
and that's over at the Dubuque Fighting Saints. They've got Stephen Halliday, who's the leading scorer, or has been kind of bouncing around in, in, in the mix as a leading scorer in the USHL this year, 56 points in 36 games. And Connor Kurth, who also plays for Dubuque, 52 points in 36 games. I like Kurth as a po- possible draftee last season. He did not end up getting picked. But that is uh, Kurth in particular is the guy that I think really has a great opportunity to be drafted because I think he plays the style um, that is necessary. Now he was not ranked by central scouting, uh, on, on their last ranking. He's not, he's kind of flown under the radar a little bit, but you know, I've watched Dubuque live a couple times this season. I've watched, you know, Kurth at the, at the all American game. I think there's a player there, you know, he's, he's five eleven, two fifteen. He's solidly built. He's got some physicality to him. He comes from Elk river, Minnesota, uh, played at Gentry Academy and then moved on to Dubuque. I mean, he had 41 points last season um, in his draft year. It's at 17 years old in the USHL. That's a pretty darn good season this year. He's already at 52 points in just 36 games, really taking off. He's committed to the University of Minnesota where he'll go next season. I think he plays the game hard. I think he's got a good scoring ability. And, you know, you look at kind of his numbers and certainly Halliday's numbers, and they're very similar at the same age as a Blake Coleman at uh in the ushl at that at, at a similar age so coleman averaged 1.56 points per game that's exactly on point with what halliday has kurth has 1.44 um which is you know and, and kurth is a little bit younger halliday it feels like he's been in the ushl for forever that's because he was a former number one overall draft pick in that league um he's headed to the ohio state university next year he's big he's six foot four like 600 or six 600 six foot four you know over 220 pounds um he slimmed down this year he took he 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 was he was played heavy i think last season um and he still produced he still was very strong offensively um you know but he's he's in his fourth season in the ushl he's 19 years old but he's having a tremendous season. So you you have to decide, you know, what is there? I think I've seen enough progression in his game year over year, specifically last year to this year, where he's now a, a bona fide goal scorer, a, a high-end playmaker. He's going to end his career as Dubuque Fighting Saints all-time leading scorer. Um, I think that there's at least a chance that he's going to go in this draft because I do think that there were concerns about it. You know, was he in shape? Was he going to be able to handle the conditioning? I think at this point, I feel much more confident in his ability to translate some of the skills that he has into being an NHL draft pick. Also, I think one of the guys to watch um, in terms of re-entries and at the goaltending position, because this is not a strong year for goaltenders. So this might actually be the year that Brett Brochu from the London Knights finally gets drafted. Now, it is very difficult for a goaltender that is below six foot to get drafted into the NHL. But as we've seen over ye- over the last several years, that you know, g- smaller goalies can make it. Dustin Wolf is doing very well in professional hockey right now, and he is you know a smaller goaltender, and he had tremendous numbers in junior. He pretty much everywhere he went, he put up really good numbers and. He's listed at six foot, probably generously listed at six foot. Brett Brochu listed at 5'11". Um, 
but you look at right now, Dustin Wolf as the quote-unquote undersized goaltender, and certainly I discounted him at times. I did rank him as a goalie for that draft year, but he was selected 214th overall by Calgary. He has a 934 save percentage in 24 USHL or AHL games this season. He, he did earn a call-up to the taxi squad, hasn't played in any NHL games yet, but a 934 save percentage in his first year pro. He had a 940 in, in the... WHL the year before, 935, 936, 928. I mean, since he was essentially 16 years old or 15 years old, this guy hasn't had a save percentage south of 928 in 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 more when he's played more than, you know, 20 games. So it's pretty it's pretty remarkable what he's accomplished in his career. And now Brett Brochu, I'm not trying to say that Brett Brochu is as good as Dustin Wolf, but I think he's in the conversation. Because you know he's a 2002 born player, he is, you know, playing in a league obviously on a good team with the London Knights, but he's playing in a league where it's very difficult to maintain a save percentage north of the 920s, and that's where he's at right now, 922. He's 22 seven and one with one shutout, 2.46 goals against average, um, and you know he this is a guy that didn't have anywhere to play last year. He got into one AHL game as an emergency backup for a Wilkes-Barre Scranton or an emergency call-up. Um, but, you know, his fresh his rookie year in, in London had a 919 save percentage in 42 games. So he's a gamer. He's a competitive goalie. He's athletic. He's got speed. There's a lot of things to like about him. So uh, I definitely think that, that Brett Brochu is a guy to keep an eye on as a re-entry. This one comes from Eddie Rutang. Rutanga, hi Chris. Who do you think the Sabers are going to go after in the draft? Thanks. Well, it's always difficult to kind of see what specific teams are going to do what, and certainly with Kevin Adams still being very early in his tenure as general manager, and now in his second draft, or is what what will be his third draft, it's really difficult to know. But the one thing that we do know is that the Buffalo Sabers have vastly improved their prospect system over the last two seasons. They caught a lot of flack for drafting Jack Quinn as early as they did, specifically drafting him ahead of Marco Rossi, who was his, who was Quinn's more productive junior teammate. Jack Quinn has been absolutely phenomenal in the American Hockey League this season. Last year he had his struggles, but he's really developed. You know, Seth Appert, who is at with with the Rochester Americans, former National Team Development Program coach, very development centric coach, he's done a phenomenal job with the young players in Rochester, and it. You look at what Jack Quinn is doing, 18 goals in 24 games, 35 points. And that's just the AHL level. And then there's, of course, Owen Power. There's John Jason Paterka. There's Uko Pekalukanen. There's Devin Levi. So all of a sudden, you're looking at one of the top prospect systems in the entire NHL. So really, what I'm trying to say is, whoever they pick, it really doesn't matter. I think that if there is an opportunity to find a top-end defenseman, if they're in the range that, that can happen, if you can get a Nemitz, if you can get a Juracek as a right shot defenseman, I think that you are at least considering that pretty, pretty, uh, pretty significantly. You know, are you going to be in a range where that's even possible for you? Who knows? I, I think Pavel Mentukov is another guy to keep an eye on as a kind of that mid first round player. Um, you know, but but I mean, I think if you could land one of Nemitz or Juracek as as a long term right shot defenseman. You, you know you're you're getting bigger. Your check is the is the bigger of the two, but you're getting bigger as six foot one in in uh, in Nemitz as well. Um, you've got guys that can move the puck. You got guys that play the modern style of defense. So you know if you're you're in that range, 
as the Sabres could be, um, then I think those are the types of players that you look for. Because I think if they can beef up that blue line, that's one area where there, there still needs to be some work. Um, because I think the forwards group, you think about Dylan Cousins, you think about Peyton Krebs now required from uh, the, the Golden Knights. You know, there are things that are starting to happen in Buffalo where, where it's building up a little bit and you can finally start feeling a little more secure in kind of the rebuild package. So I think things are looking up in Buffalo for the future. There's still a long way to go. This next one comes from Peter Monsrud, who's who's someone's sitting outside of your top 50 draft prospects at this point in time that intrigues you and why? Well, this is a guy that sits way out of my top 50, but it, I, I have a chance to watch him enough here. He plays for the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders, which is near to me. Um, he doesn't have the statistical profile of a guy that you say that guy is definitely getting drafted. But it's Zachariah Wisdom, who's the younger brother of Zade Wisdom, who's in the Flyers system, really broke out last season in the AHL, took a huge step, and then unfortunately got significantly injured um, uh, earlier in the in the preseason and you know had to kind of start from scratch but he's he's back in the OHL Zachariah wisdom is is taking a different path um he's you know he's gone the USHL route he didn't play anywhere last year he's got 14 points in 31 games he's not a hulking player but he's about six foot very solidly built and he plays with such reckless abandon and energy and he's so good on the forecheck and he wins so many battles you still have to draft players like that. You, even though we're always looking for the next big star, we're looking for the guys that are going to be, um, you know, hugely important. It's okay to find fourth liners in the draft. In fact, it's it's helpful too, because you think about the way that teams have to build their rosters and fourth liners when they're veterans and when they're proven, they're not as cheap as you would like them to be. If you can home grow uh, your own. Four, third and fourth line guys, guys that are going to play in depth for you, then you're in good shape. So, so Zachariah Wisdom is a guy that you you probably won't even see him in my top 100. Um, maybe you will. I don't know. He's he's really picked up his offensive game lately, and I, I like where things are going for him. I do think that he's going to find a way uh, to be a very competitive player at the next level. He's way off the beaten path. I mean, this is a deep sleeper we're talking about here. Um, but Zachariah Wisdom is a guy that I have watched, and every single time I've seen him, He's done something that that makes me kind of perk my eyebrows up a little bit and say, okay, there's something there. There's something there. There's something that I want to see more of. Um, and if he gets healthy and he's able to kind of return to the lineup and and be a, as effective as he has been, I'm going to be really excited about that because I think there's something there with him. All right, this is the last question about the draft ones, and then I'm going to rip through some of the Olympics and other stuff that we have. But we, we still have plenty of questions to get to, and I can't thank you all enough for uh, for doing that, I, I I'm so thankful that I didn't even go through my spiel of of you know doing the rate review subscribe all that you know stuff. We'll we'll save that for later. But but please go to hockeysense.substack.com and you know consider a subscription. It'd be very helpful. Anyways, moving on. This next one comes from uh, uh, somebody who didn't leave their name, so I'm just going to call him T Bone McGillicuddy from Perth, Australia. Um, it's a really good question though, and, and I really I really appreciate this because. Uh, it, it goes into process and and especially doing what I do, you know, kind of how things work and how how we build our lists. And so uh, T-Bone asks, I'd be curious to how you value positions differently. And if there's any guys, if you were ranking them for a team that you'd have high 
but wouldn't want. That's an interesting like so and, and I had to ask the person to clarify and basically said, you know, there's a player who you don't necessarily would recommend for the draft, but they're so good or they're you know that that you ultimately feel like you have to rank them. And there has certainly been times that that has happened um, over the years. And there were players where you say, well, and, and the, the difference is, is that I'm not picking for a team. I try to think like I'm picking for a team, but I'm not. And so there is a chance for me to take higher risks and to, um, you know, because what are the, what, what ultimately are the consequences for me versus uh, being on a team? The consequences for me is I look foolish um, when you guys will go back and look at my draft rankings later on. And certainly there's, there's always a credibility issue with those of us that do this in the public. So anyway, to get to the first question about valuing positions differently. And yes, we, we all do. I think, you know, I've said it here on the podcast before center is always going to be the position that I lean most heavily towards. I think it's the most important. I think it's one of the hardest to play at the highest levels. Um, and you know, you look at Stanley cup contenders over the years, if, if they don't have clear number one centers, very often, they're not going to win the Stanley cup. You need to have that foundational piece down the center ice. Um, and often you need more than you, you need more than one. I mean, how many teams are out there looking for number two centers? Um, it's hugely important position for me. Um, next would be defense. I think, you know, you, you look at the, the ways that, you know, those guys are on the ice more. If you can get a star defenseman, you know, you got a guy that's potentially playing for your team for 12 to 15 years. Um, you know, the way things are going, you know, the Los Angeles Kings have seen Drew Doughty ebb and flow, but really over the years, largely positive, largely among the best in the, in the world. And it's very hard to find players like that. So I'd say that, you know, it goes center to defense. And, and certainly there have been times where I've built the board up. And I think even this year, you know, I think that as I look at, at Nemitz and Juracek, there are forwards that I ranked behind them, uh, wings and some even some centers, that, you know, I was thinking for a long, good long while, I think that, you know, I might want to put some of these forwards ahead of them. But at the same time, you're looking at the value of, that they can bring as defensemen. And, and I think both have top four upside. And with that, you know, I've got some guys that I think could be middle six, second line kind of players in that next tier. So that's a, a big reason why I ended up putting both of them over um, some of the forwards that I did. But I, you know, I could definitely foresee a scenario where guys like Nazar, um, you know, Connor Geeky could could potentially move ahead of them on my list, but that's, you know, there's still time to figure that out. Um, after that, it's wingers. I think, you know, it, the wings have to be exceptional. I, you know, you look at a guy like, like uh, Andrei Svechnikov and he was exceptional. And that was a year where there weren't the centers that you, that you have this year and Shane Wright, Logan Cooley, Nazer, Connor Geeky, Matt Savoy. I mean, so many different players um, that, that you could kind of put in those, in those positions um, but, you know, if you can find a good scoring wing, 
Um, as long as they're helping your team, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with having a, a, a good wing. And the thing is, is that a lot of these centers that you're drafting, the reason that I put centers ahead is a lot of times you're not really draft. You're not necessarily ending up drafting a center. There's a good chance that that guy's going to get moved to the wing. Um, I think it's easier for those guys to move from center to wing. And so I will always have that um, that center bias um, when it's close. Um, so lastly, goalies, you know, definitely value. It's, it's such a hugely valuable position, but when it's specific to the draft, there's so much more risk involved. Um, we've seen the various ways that teams can acquire goaltenders. If you can draft them, that's amazing. Um, but it's very difficult to do that. And that's why, you know, when I'm talking specifically about the draft, it's not necessarily, um, going to be at the top of mind unless they're a special player. And I think last draft with Sebastian Kosa and Jesper Wallstedt, their skill sets were special relative to the field. Um, and that's why I had both of them as, as first round goaltenders. All right, it's time to move on to some Olympics talk. Uh, and I have to say, despite the weirdness of these Olympics, I still love the Olympics. Um, I, I really do. It, I have since I was a kid. Um, it, it, it captures my imagination in such a way that, uh, you know, I'm just, I, it, it's hard not to, to, to really go all in on it. The time change is very bad for my sleep habits, but I, I'm really excited about the Olympics and we've got some men's and women's hockey questions. We are going to get to both of them right here. And the first one comes from Cam Eckmeyer. Would a surprise non USA or Canada gold medalist in women's hockey help or hurt the game? It's a, it's a great hypothetical. It's probably not going to happen for a while, but I think ultimately, yes, it's good for the game. If another country were to win, I think that the, the growth of women's hockey, beyond North America is critical for the overall health of the game long-term. Um, certainly it should be something that the IIHF and, and I think even the NHL should be, you know, actively involved in, in terms of aiding the growth of women's hockey. Um, and certainly as of right now, it's USA and Canada. There's really nobody else that's come close Finland came a little close at a world championship but never at the Olympics you look at you know Finland was in a gold medal game at the world championship beat Canada uh, a couple of years ago on home ice and then they end up this Olympics they almost went winless in the preliminary round so you know not not a great start for them um in this Olympics and then you're like well who's really going to challenge well quite frankly nobody but I do agree with Cam. You know, I think it's an important question because it could change the face of women's hockey and the dynamic in women's hockey long term. Where the we're in a, a non USA or Canada Olympic team win. The problem with that, though, as as I think you kind of have to mention as well, is that you know there are a few things better for the growth of women's hockey in North America than a gold medal moment. I think that we saw a huge surge in women's hockey. The problem with, with the, the U S women winning in 2018 was there wasn't enough runway before the pandemic hit to build up the moment to, to, to feed off of that momentum. Yes, there was the bump initially, but then it crumbles the year of the, the pandemic, which is hugely unfortunate because that 2018 gold medal for the U.S. women was a touchstone moment. It was one of the signature moments of the Pyeongchang Olympics. And 
it was something that played over and over and over again. They were on all, all you couldn't go anywhere without hearing about that team after they won the gold medal. And it was hugely beneficial to the, to hockey in the United States. And I'm sure that it has been in Canada as well when, when the women have won there, but eventually there will need to be some competition. Now I'm sure everybody saw the outrage of the Toronto star column that women's hockey should not be in the Olympics. And I, could not disagree with that more. Without it in the Olympics, you stifle any opportunity for growth. You take away funding from the federations that that need to be incentivized to grow women's hockey. If you have a, a, a healthy women's hockey is good for hockey as a whole. And that creates, and that's one thing that I hope the NHL will eventually get on board with because, you know, if there is a successful pro women's hockey league, or if there is something that's a viable women's pro hockey league, and certainly that's not to take anything away from the PHF, but right now the biggest stars of women's hockey are not playing in that league. Um, but it, you know, more people involved in the game and, and more people loving the game is good for the game as a whole. And it's good for the NHL too, because those people will, will the NHL is the most accessible version of hockey. Um, so those people will have an opportunity to, you know, send that to, 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 to become fans of the NHL product as well. So um, I think in terms of for the future of women's hockey at the Olympics, a non-USA Canada gold medalist would be hugely important. I just don't think we're going to see it for a long time. And I do think that there's still benefits to the way things are right now. Uh, the next one is also about women's hockey, and it comes from Spencer Fischetta. Most impressive non-North American so far in women's hockey at the Olympics. I'm going to go a little off the board. I mean, certainly Alina Bueller from uh, Switzerland, who plays hockey at Northeastern and has been you know, one of the most skilled players in the world and is super exciting. I think she's been impressive, but I'm going in a different direction. I'm going with Ayaka Toko from Japan. And now, if you are a U.S.-Canadian fan, you haven't seen Japan yet. Um, because they were in the other bracket. But take a look at this stat line. Toko played over 30 minutes a game, averaged over 30 minutes a game. She played 34 minutes in a shootout win over the Czechs, 33 in a shootout loss against China, and 31 in a regulation win over Sweden in a huge upset that really set Japan up for a tremendous tournament. And she also has four points. She's playing over half the game in a regulation game, you just don't see that very often. And she's doing it in multiple games. So Ayaka Toko is the standout for me. You look at her stat line. She's a, she's a small defenseman that is finding a way. Her four points in these Olympics is actually the career high for her internationally. Um, so this has been a huge moment for, for, Japanese women's hockey as they've managed to get to the quarterfinal and and certainly you know we'll see what happens they they have an opportunity to to maybe make some noise here and and um I'm I'm excited to see what they can do. All right, this is a, a Canadian Olympic team related question. I don't know if it was specific to the Olympics, but I'm answering it here because Jack McBain will be playing for Canada at the Olympics, and this comes from Joseph Noro. No- Nawariak, sorry Joseph. Hottest name in college hockey at the moment is Jack McBain. That's debatable. Is he the hottest name if he doesn't pop in the stats column like he has? 
Good question. I mean, you know, he's having a, a pretty tremendous season. Um, yeah, I, I believe 24 points in 18 games so far for Jack McBain at Boston College. BC has not been very good this year. They'd be even worse without McBain, and now they've also lost Mark McLaughlin, Drew Hellison, um, you know, to to the Olympics. So they are missing some key guys. And and uh, as my friend Brad Schlossman reported, currently in a 10-game winless streak, including a loss at the Bean Pot. And that is the longest winless streak in program history. Besides that, Jack McBain has had a phenomenal season. He's having a breakout season. It's by far his best season in college. Um, you know, when a guy pops late, you know, you do take it with a grain of salt because there are certain things that will just uh, improve over time as they gain experience, gain strength, all those different things. But I think that McBain making the Canadian Olympic team is is such a great indication of how far he's come. Um, you know, I'm thinking back, I remember watching the Holinka Gretzky cup that he played in, um, in his draft season. I remember thinking, wow, this guy is a power forward potential. He, he could go real high in the draft. I think in my first draft rankings, I even had him as a top 10 or top 15 pick, um, for that, that season based almost entirely off of that tournament. Um, and he has never really lived up to it until now. Um, I think, you know, there was an opportunity there that were maybe Minnesota wouldn't have considered signing him now that it's like they have to get him signed. He would be eligible um, for free agency otherwise. So if they, if they don't manage to get him signed, but I'm really excited to see what he does at the Olympics because he's a, he's a big body. He can play a power forward style. He's, he's scoring goals this year. And um, you know, we had kind of waited to see him reach that full potential. I think he's finally getting there. So uh, yeah, but I mean, without the points, you know, he basically spent three seasons as a, as a pretty average hockey player, average college hockey player. This year, I think he's a star college hockey player. Um, we'll see what happens when he gets back from the Olympics, but that's an interesting one. Uh, this next one comes from Scott Kennedy, and this needs a – if you, you can go look on my Twitter feed and see the, the gif that he attached to this, but it is very Chicago-specific. There, there was an old television ad for this – uh, Victor, Victory Auto Wreckers, uh, which is you know a place that would um, you know take your take your scrap cars and all those different things and and fix them up and and, and whatever else, and and in the commercial the, a gentleman opens the door to his old car and the door falls off. You probably I think it's been memed, but but the this this ad ran for my entire childhood and into my adulthood, and it it the same ad. I mean. Old car, 80s up. It was incredible. Um, but Scott's question in a very specific Chicago way that I now have explained and maybe alienated half the audience, well, a, a lot, more than half the audience. Which Olymp Olympics team is like the car from the Victory Auto Records ad? Um, and that would be China. Uh, the, the men's team is the Kunlun Red Star. We talked about it last week with Stephen uh, Ellis. The worst team in the KHL by a significant margin, minus 97 goal differential. Um, now they got to go to the Olympics. A lot of players from North America on their team. Several guys that actually had pretty decent, um, you know, either AHL or maybe had a you know some time in the NHL like Brandon Yip. Um, but you know, you think of different things. I, I mean, that's that's the team. I, I don't you know I don't anticipate them winning a game uh, i don't anticipate them being particularly close to winning a game um 
unless Jeremy Smith has the games of his life, um, and we will see. All right, we've got a Michigan hockey-related Olympics question. This comes from Mike Salerno. Who wins in a fight, five Strauss-man-sized Owen Powers or one Owen Powers-sized Strauss-man? Wow. Difficult question. Strauss-man, of course, uh, the goaltender for Team USA. Owen Power, the most recent number one pick. Both of them were teammates at the University of Michigan last year. Man very well could be in the net against Owen Power. Um, If I were to take that fight, I would say one Owen Power-sized Strauss-man because Strauss is a very intelligent individual. Um, very cerebral, not to say that Owen isn't Owen is actually also very intelligent. Um, uh, but you know, I think goalies are a little bit nuts. And, uh, when you give me a choice to, to pick the goalie, um, I'm going to pick the goalie and, and certainly you throw Owen Powers size on him. Well, I like his odds. Uh, now another question, this one from Noah Berger, luge skeleton or bobsled. And I'm glad that we got away from hockey for one second here, because I have to say it's actually bobsled. I think people who do the luge and skeleton are extra crazy. The people that do the bobsled also crazy, but not quite as crazy as sliding down face first or feet first on a, uh, uh, basically a children's sled. I mean, they're obviously much more high tech than that, but you get the picture. Anyway, I also really love the movie Cool Running. So bobsled for me. Thank you for the question, Noah. All right, on to prospects talk. And this is more general prospects talk. We're going to cover a, a number of different teams and, and topics. So let's get to that right here with our first one. And it comes from Dave Shapiro. Dave asks, how did the New York Rangers manage to get four top 10 picks and outright screw up half and have the other half be woefully behind on development. I know that there are a lot of frustrated Rangers fans. There is good reason. I mean, Leas Anderson is with the, first, the 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 half that were you know quote unquote screwed up were Leas Anderson and Vitaly Kravtsov. Um, you know, seventh Anderson was seventh overall in 2017, traded to to the Los Angeles Kings eventually. Vitaly Kravtsov currently in Russia. Um, you know, has not clicked for him in North America. And it looks like he's probably going to get traded at some point. We'll be interesting to see if he gets dealt around the deadline. He was drafted ninth overall in 2018. Then you get Capo Caco in 2019 and Alexi Lafreniere in 2020. And neither of them have necessarily produced at anywhere close to a level that you would expect for players drafted in their slot. And, you know, Lafreniere, 34 career points in 101 games. Kako, 54 career points in 151 games. Um, and I will say on the latter two, they may be behind in development, but it's certainly not too late to right the ship for either of them. I just don't know exactly how that's going to happen on a team that is trying to contend now. Um, I think the Rangers have a chance to go for it. Um, I think they're a good team. They've got a lot of talent. Uh, certainly the goaltending with Shesterkin is big. Um, as far as Anderson and Kravtsov goes, I think that the first thing that happens is that I don't think either of those two guys were top 10 picks at the time they were picked in the top 10. So that's one thing. You have to all of a sudden recalibrate your expectations. Now, I know Kravtsov had very wide-ranging opinions in his draft year. I personally had him in the 20s. Um you know, I like the player. He had a late push in that season, had a great postseason. I've watched him since then. 
uh, and he's done well in the KHL, but in, in the American Hockey League, um, which is a very difficult league under any circum, or cir- circumstance, especially for young players. Um, and, you know, he's the guy where, you know, I, you watch him, watch him with Rockford or Hartford rather. And I just, I don't think it was working. You know, I don't think that he was, he was, he certainly wasn't earning the opportunity to, to move up. Now he's back with his home club in with tractor. He did play 20 NHL games last season, 13 points in 19 games and likely, you know, wants to have a trade facilitated. I don't necessarily view that one as on the Rangers. I know that there, I'm sure there are a lot of Rangers fans who feel that way. You see some of the highlights that he puts up in the KHL as he did last season when he had 24 points in 49 games. Um, you know, that's, that's something that certainly, you know, stands out, but when he's played in North America, it just, it's not there. I'm not sure that he knows, you know, I think it, I'm not sure if it's a hockey sense thing. I'm not sure if it's an effort thing. Um, if it's a style of play thing, I'm just not sure it's there. When you have a guy and you give, you, you hang a, a top 10 pick on him, it puts a lot of pressure on that player. And it's just, I, I wish I had a better explanation but as I've watched Kravtsov play in North America, I just don't see a guy that's going to be a meaningful NHL prospect. And maybe a change of scenery will help him and he gets into the right development system. But I still don't see him coming right into the NHL with any team. And if he's not willing to go to the AHL to to, to build that up, it's a non-starter. You got to find a way. Um, and I, I do put some of that on him. As for the other two, Hindsight is twenty twenty. Capo Kaka was not ready for the NHL when, when he was there. I thought he was. I think anybody that had seen him the year before would have thought he was. Um, you know, was he put in the best position? Probably not. You know, I don't think he necessarily was put in a position to succeed. Um, we're still kind of waiting on what exactly he's going to be at the NHL level. Um, I still think that there is a lot of time. He's only in his third NHL season. He's only 20 years old. There is a lot of time left for him to develop, for him to find his way. You know, and this season, you know, takes some solace in the fact that he is producing at a higher rate. You know, his points per game is up. It's not high. It's not not a significant difference. His career point per game average is 0.36, and he's at 0.38 this year. Um, so it's not something that necessarily is 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 tracking quickly but how do you how do you get that back you know how do you how do you find a way to get him back on the right track and you know i maybe that ship has sailed and you know when he's already got 150 nhl games you're like well we can't just send him to the american league we can't just send him back to finland um and and he plays well enough to help us you know so i'm not overly concerned about that alexi lafreniere i think there are a couple of factors. The one being his, his rookie season is preceded by an extended off period, you know, where he wasn't playing anywhere, had to come in and immediately jump into the NHL after so many months off. And that starts him off on the wrong foot. I don't think he could have gone back to junior. I think he was a guy that had to be in the NHL. He's had to learn the hard way. 
And I think this season, we're seeing him assert himself more. He's starting to score more. He's starting to get more comfortable in in that element. He's still not playing a ton. You know, 13, 13 plus minutes a game. It's tough to get a guy when you're on a contending team in a position to get the ice time that he's going to need to to continue to develop. Um, but again, this is another guy, also only 20 years old. There is a lot of time left for these guys to find it. And I'm certainly, I've watched Alexi Lafreniere enough to know that he's going to find it. And he, and if he doesn't find it necessarily in the scoring department right away, he will find a way to impact the game in other ways. He's a highly competitive player. I think that the, that the best is yet to come from him. And with more opportunity, I think the numbers will come. But that was a really good question from Dave. And uh, I appreciate it. I know Rangers fans are frustrated. Uh, MVP 96 asks, who's your pick to win the Calder? I wrote about this right before the all-star break. So this is before Trevor Zegers went viral again. Um, and, and certainly the viral goals are meaningful, but I think that Trevor Zegers to me is one of the most unique players to come into the NHL in a long time. It has created value for his team. It has created value for the NHL. Um, do I think, and I know this is going to upset Pete because I'm pretty sure he's a Red Wings fan. Um, I, you know, I think the only other guy that, that really, I, I initially had second on that list, Lucas Raymond, but I really do think after a lot more thoughts and, and especially getting yelled at by Red Wings fans, but really after a lot more thought and, and how much I, I, I think, I think the player is, is, is an impact player. And, you know, I think Moritz Sider is, is, is exceptional and there's absolutely a case for him to win, um, you know, to play his position that as well as he has in his first full season in the NHL to be physical, to have um, no reverence necessarily for, for, for the, for the league, you know, like where, where he's, he's not, he's not shying away from anything. He's, he's going after it. I think, you know, he's, he's having a good time and he's producing, he's producing and he's defending well. Um, So I, I think that there's absolutely a case for him. And then Lucas Raymond at this point would be third on my list. Uh, the next question comes from Benjamin Weiss. These are two college hockey-related questions coming up. Actually, three. Uh, Benjamin asks, thoughts on the NCAA ruling on how the beanpot overtime has changed and why, could it, why it could not be like it was in 2020, a tie for the pairwise, and then play 20-minute OTs until there is a winner. Deciding a tournament like this on a shootout feels similar to deciding the World Cup on one. And similar, sure. But, I mean, you know, the beanpot is a big deal. It's a huge deal in, in the East, and... And, and absolutely, um, I think that they should, you know, it, as, as a unique tradition, it should be allowed to have different rules. Um, I don't know why they changed it this way. I don't like it. I think that the bean pot should have been left alone, um, but it does count for the pairwise. And uh, I understand the, the need for uniformity, but I think that there have been several things that college hockey has done over the last couple of years that have been detrimental to um, the good of the game. And part of it, we still don't have uniform overtime rules for the, the entire nation. We're still like counting ties and all these things that for games that are won in shootouts and, you know, conference standings may look way different than the pairwise in the end because of shootouts and overtimes and things of that nature. Um, but I do think that the bean pot was one of those things where the fact that it could go on forever or feel like it could go on forever is one of the, the great things about it. Um, and I do think it is a disservice to college hockey. The other thing that I, I'm still furious about is, you know, the NCAA changed its stat keeping methods, and that is part of the reason why 
college hockey stats is 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 gone collegehockeystats.net i still go to it by accident all the time very thankful for you know uscho college hockey news for having um, comprehensive statistical databases uh, that that allow to to search but it is not the same as having uh, what was what was available through collegehockeystats.net and college hockey inc um, which was able to kind of scrape from that and and put together an even more comprehensive and sortable um, uh, site for for the stats. And I do think that for people that follow the game, statistics are a huge part of it. And for people to cover the game selfishly, um, to not have that site anymore really sucks. So uh, that's that's that. Uh, next one comes from Billy Brew. Why isn't Chaz Lucius scoring more? Good question, Billy. Um, Chaz Lucius, of course, the first round draft pick of the Winnipeg Jets, um, playing at the University of Minnesota as a freshman. Uh, he has gotten banged up a couple times this year, did leave for the World Juniors. Uh, but with a player of his skill set, you probably expect more. He does have 16 points in 22 games. You know, not bad for a true freshman, but I think that there certainly were higher expectations for his scoring ability. You also have to consider the fact that he missed most of last season. He only ended up playing in about 13 total games um, last season and scored 13 goals. And so they say, okay, well, why not? Well, the jump is pretty significant from what he was playing, even at the National Team Development Program, to Division I college hockey. He's been down the lineup a bit at times. Um, so role certainly comes into play when you're talking about Lucius, but it's been a little bit of a drought for him. And I think that Minnesota as a whole is, has been just a really inconsistent team. Um, they've had their moments throughout the season, but you know, I, I just, I think it's an environmental thing more than anything else. And then on top of that, also going through some injuries, being missing so much of last season, you know, not having that full year to get ready and then being a guy that still needs to build strength and, 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 you know, add more to his frame those all kind of come into play. So, um, you know, I'm not super worried about uh, Chaz Lucius. I've seen him, you know, I thought that he played in the in the little bit of World Junior that we saw. I thought he played well when he got the opportunity. Um, and, you know, I'm not, he's, he's not, he's not a guy that I'm going to be overly concerned about. Um, but, you know, certainly when you see how well Matthew Nyes has played and how well some of the other freshmen across the country have played, you know, you start wondering. But the other thing that, that I do think uh, we'll need to see is, you know, you want to see Chaz shooting more. He has 55 shots on goal in 22 games this year. Not bad. Shooting percentage at 14.5%. He's going to be a guy that's going to carry a higher shooting percentage more often than not. So uh, uh, what's that old, you know? The easiest thing to do is just just shoot more. All right, we are down to our final three questions. One last one on the college hockey front, and it's a good one from Tristan A. What can you tell us about Jake Livingstone and his upside as a college free agent? Well, Jake Livingstone is a big right shot defenseman for Minnesota State, and he was awesome in the postseason last year. I think that was probably where I really started to pay more attention to Jake Livingstone. Great in the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, makes a lot of plays, certainly improving his offensive numbers this year versus last year. He had 14 points in 28 games last year as a freshman, an older freshman. This year, 24 points in 32 games. 
um, including eight goals. And as I mentioned, he's a six foot three, 205 pound right shot defenseman, defends very well, skates well, good offensively. You know, had big numbers with the Langley Rivermen last season or two seasons ago in his last season of, of junior hockey. And he's just been a been a factor and a force. And Minnesota State as a whole is such a good they have such a good defensive system. Everybody that plays there has to be able to defend if they want to play. Livingstone is finding that even more. You know, he's plus 18 this year. You don't want to look at plus minus too much, obviously, but you know, just to give an indication, this team just does not allow very many goals. Historically, the Minnesota State uh, defenseman, you know, Casey Nelson is one. Um, uh, Daniel Brickley is another. You know, they, they've they've often had guys that were were highly sought after college free agents, and Livingstone very well could be. And I think because of his size, because he's a right shot, because of the numbers that he's put up and and the, where he's played, he is going to get an NHL contract from somewhere. He's 22 years old. Uh, he'll turn 23 in April. He's only got two seasons of college hockey under his belt. So it's really the ball is in his court in terms of what he wants to do next. I do think that there will be times that teams that will, will come at him with a contract after this season is over. Um, I'm not necessarily certain that he shouldn't do that. Um, but as we've seen, you know, uh, Daniel Brickley was one of the most highly regarded college free agents in the year that he came out and he really never made it. Um, and is currently in the ECHL. And, and so not saying that it's over for him, but, you know, it's probably, it probably is in terms of being an NHL defenseman. Um, however, I do think that Mike Hastings is a heck of a coach. I think he develops players extremely well. Um, they do have players that, that have made it to the NHL level. Um, it's not been a pro factory, but I think Livingstone in particular, and you look at him playing down the stretch last season on a team that ended up going to the Frozen Four, and now how he's played this season, that is a guy that I would absolutely use a contract on if I had to. If um, you know, there are, I think there are better potential options. You know, there are guys like Brandon Scanlon who I think is really interesting from from Omaha. Um, I think that the forward crop of college free agents this year is better than the defense. Ben Myers is is number one on my board. Um, certainly Mark McLaughlin from BC. They're both at uh, the Olympics right now with Team USA. Uh, but Livingstone is a name to know. So a really good question there uh, from Tristan. Next one comes from Tyler Hergert. If you were a commissioner and you could move the Coyotes, what city would you move them to? It's got to suck to be a Coyotes fan and always have everybody wanting to move your team. I will say that right up front. I don't like that that has happened. And I also want to be very clear about one other thing. Hockey is growing pretty rapidly in Arizona, and the pandemic is going to skew those numbers a bit. But before the pandemic, things were really trending in a positive direction. A lot of that has to do with the work the Coyotes have done to, to help build up some youth hockey and to have you know arenas and, and, and making sure that those opportunities exist. Um, Austin Matthews is another huge reason. We'll have an, a, an Arizona Olympian in Matthew Nyes um, playing for Team USA uh, at, at, this week. So... Good things are happening in Arizona, so it gives me no pleasure to try and move the team. But obviously, with the new Arizona State situation, you know, I think that they're gonna there's gonna be more pressure than there's ever been um, on potentially moving the Coyotes. If they were to move the team, the the place I would pick is Houston. Uh, Houston is one of the largest metro areas that um, exists in in the United States, where there is not hockey presently. 
there is a hockey history there, obviously the Houston arrows and, and, and it's, it's sad that they no longer exist, but it's good for me because in Des Moines, uh, the Iowa wild are used to be the Houston arrows. So, um, uh, now I have an AHL team closer to me, so selfishly. But I, I do think Houston is very interesting. My brother actually lived there for a couple of years. He was a Houston firefighter. Um, and I think it's such a unique city. Will the NHL work there? I think you got to give it time. Um, certainly if you have the right owner. And Tilmer Fertitta is, is the owner of the, the Houston Rockets who has at least expressed interest in the past or has, has hinted an interest of the NHL. Um I think that that's probably the most viable option at this point. Um, I believe that the Toyota Center, or I'm not sure what it's called anymore, where the Rockets play, um, would be viable as, as a hockey arena as well. Um, uh, unless they want to go play at the old Aerodrome, which still exists. So you can go play hockey where Gordy Howe once played hockey, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it's tough to say. And, and obviously hockey in Texas is, has has its challenges. Um, especially, you know, Houston is, is a, a very widespread city, like nothing is really close in Houston. So it's kind of difficult to navigate. Um, but I mean, you look at, you look at the success of the Astros, the, the Rockets and and over the years, um, to have a hockey team back in Houston would be really interesting. And I think a potential growth market for the NHL and an opportunity to continue to tap into the, the, a large population base, um, Apologies to everyone in Quebec City. I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, apologies to anyone in Kansas City. We've been talking about it for for so many years, and now the Sprint Center is suddenly old. Um, there's so many different things that that kind of go into that. But I would say, you know, if they have to move, uh, and I hate the idea of moving it away from Arizona because I still think that there's potential. I know I'm a, I, call me crazy, and and it's fine. Crazy is actually the, the is now the the code word if you made it this far into the podcast. So tweet at me crazy and I'll tweet you a gif of some kind um, to let me know that you finished the podcast. But it'll be interesting to see that play out. The final question I'm looking forward to getting into because I think it's really interesting. Uh, Kyle Fultz asks, in your opinion, of the candidates we know the Blackhawks have interviewed so far, who do you think they should hire for their GM job? First off, I think it's great that the Blackhawks are being transparent about this thing. Not great considering what happened with Rocky Wirtz and Mark Lazarus at that town hall meeting. As you probably know, because I mention it, I'm from Chicago. I grew up there. I grew up a Blackhawks fan. Um, Watching that Rocky Wirtz outburst at Mark Lazarus was was almost as offensive um, as anything. But really, over the last year, everything with Kyle Beach and everything that happened there, that was more offensive than anything and still upsetting and I know is going to cost this team fans um all of that you know this is a team that has to get its house in order and what happened with Rocky Wirtz was so upsetting to me personally as as somebody that you know grew up loving that team um and certainly as as I've gotten to be in my professional life the fandom just kind of melts away but it's still a team that it's easiest for me to follow. It's something I can talk about with my dad. You know, like those are so it's still something that I pay attention to closely. And to see just the the just the complete misunderstanding of the question to it, it struck me as there's so much more beneath the surface of that outburst that 
it needs to be further explored. Um, and I don't know exactly how that gets done because the, you know, the ownership can be a tight circle and, and, and I don't know where that that's going to go from here, but I, I do think that the, the Blackhawks have a long way to go in getting themselves uh, back in the good graces of their fan base and back in the good graces of the people that, that, that care about the team. So um, aside from that, to get back to Kyle's question, and I apologize for the, the, the little side sidestep there, but it really, you can't talk about the Blackhawks without talking about all of that other stuff that's going on. And now they have to make the most important hockey decision of the last little while. So I think it's great. That the Blackhawks are sharing that process with their fans, just as NFL teams have done. It allows, it, it doesn't allow for speculation to kind of take over and you, you start to get to learn who they're interviewing. So we've heard a lot of names, Peter Shirelli, you know, you got that option. You've got um, Kyle Davidson, who is the current interim general manager and has been with the organization for a long time, has worked his way all the way up. Um, you know, it's, it's a success story in that way. And I know he's very popular among the staff there. Um, and, and I think that the, the hockey operations that Chicago has built and that the, now that there is a new group in there, I think very they, they have a lot of very good people in, in positions of influence in that, in that organization. Um, so, so we know Peter Shirelli, Scott Mellenby, who's been on a GM track seemingly for forever. Um, uh, Kyle Davidson, who I mentioned, Eric Tulski from the Carolina Hurricanes, and and boy, would it be nice to have a blogger, uh, general manager. Uh, but you know, I think that was he he's very intriguing. And then the name that that kind of took everybody by surprise was Jeff Greenberg from the Chicago Cubs, and and to go outside the box and. I mean, I don't mind going outside the box. What's the worst that can happen? It's just an interview anyway. Um, I do think it'd be very difficult for somebody from the outside to come in and, 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 and do the size of the job that the Blackhawks need done. I mean, let's face it. This is a team that is in trouble and has a lot of long-term assets that are not going to get much better. Um I still have, I'm a big believer in Seth Jones. I think, you know, if he ultimately will be a solid player for them. I think Alex DeBrinkett is, is a, a great young player. I think Kirby Doc is going to figure it out eventually. Um, but the house is on fire, not just in the off-ice stuff. It's kind of on ice too. And so with that, you I think you need a steady hand. I don't think you necessarily need an experienced hand, but you need somebody that's going to be decisive and be cold and be calculating about the moves that have to be made, which could include some very unpopular decisions. Um, you know, I think that you have to get the coaching situation sorted out. There's a lot of different things that, that need to be fixed. And I'm not sure, you know, with all due respect to Jeff Greenberg, I'm not sure that, that coming from the outside and making all those decisions that are going to have long lasting impact on the organization is necessarily going to work. I think if, you know, I think there are two options for Chicago and it's the first two guys that they interviewed. It's Kyle Davidson, who's knows the ins and outs of the organization under, you know, there's, there's a rapport there. I think there's also a very valid concern that anybody that was inside the organization over the course of this period of time, whether they were involved or not is, is, is tough to swallow. Um, but I do know that that he has a lot of support internally. 
Um, I think he has a real understanding of how the organization works. Um, and I think if you surround him with the right people and they have a lot of the right people already, it'll get better. Um, we think it, it's really tough to say how much impact can you really have. But as I mentioned before, I think the most intriguing candidate, um, is, is Eric Tulski and Tulski has the analytics background. I think that that's, that's huge, but you also look at where he's coming from and he's coming from an organization that has, has, has built itself into a, a winning organization. He's been there through multiple regimes. He's, he's been a guy that, you know, has, is, has seen kind of everything and, and, and is obviously very smart. I mean, a lot of his work was in the public realm when he did do blogging and, and, you know, I think that a lot of the stuff that he did was just so far advanced and really revolutionary. Um, and then on top of that, you know, I think that he, he just has built up credibility working within an organization where he's helping with the decision process and, and had influence. Um, and, you know, when you have a, have a person like that, you know, this is a big step, no matter how you slice it, but he's probably one of, if not the smartest person that they've interviewed, um, in terms of not just hockey, but in general. And, I'd be fascinated to see what approach he takes to building a roster. So I think that I don't know who would be the best because I think it's really difficult to say. I mean, you know, I know everybody hated the idea of Peter Shirelli, but the experience that he had, there's a, there, and we talk about retreads and things like that. Well, there is a finite number of people that have the skill set to do a very specific job. And he did it and did it successfully for a long enough time. It did not go well with Edmonton. That is not the, you would hope that, that there was a learning process there because there was a lot of awful stuff that, that happened there. But I, I, I don't see the fault in interviewing somebody with that level of experience. Um, so, and then I think Mellon B is coming from a situation where, you know, things didn't go all that great in Montreal. It didn't seem like there was a ton of long-term vision there. And I don't think that that should necessarily preclude Mellonby from being there because he's got a lot of respect in the business. But I just think if you want a clean slate, if you want to go very, very different, um, I think Tulski is the one that, that would intrigue me the most. And you got to let him do his thing. You got to see what he comes up with. And I would be absolutely fascinated. Instantly, Chicago would become one of the most fascinating teams to watch because they have assets that they are going to need to get rid of. They have a rebuild on their hands, quite frankly. I mean, like, they have to start tearing certain elements down. Um, but it is going to be one of the most fascinating things to watch in all of hockey. And also, let's just hope that whatever that tirade was from Rocky words um, gets corrected and that there's a better understanding within the organization to handle the path forward because there's a lot of work that needs to be done and we will leave it there. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope that you will subscribe to this podcast, rate it, review it, five star it, leave something written, especially if you're an Apple podcast uh, let me know what you think. And also you can always send me questions at Chris M. Peters, hockey sense with CP at gmail.com as well. If you would like to have a, a question answered on this year podcast, because if you ask, I answer, that's essentially the rule it's pod law. It's what I got to do. 
but thank you so much for sticking with me this long. Once again, the code word is crazy. Let me know that on Twitter. I will send you a GIF um, because that's all I have to offer on this very independent, very cheap podcast. But thank you so much for joining me. That's going to do it for this week's episode. My name is Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense. We will see you next week for a very special and in-depth review of Team USA's games at the Winter Olympics. We'll catch you next time. 